Warning! The following presentation contains information that might contradict what you have previously heard, or believed to be true, about how the human body works, and contains material that is not suitable for closed-minded individuals. Enjoy! Sports nutrition. Uh, sports nutrition is kind of a, it's a misnomer. Okay. Because when we're looking at sports nutrition, we're basically talking about nutrition as a means to provide optimal performance. Mm -hmm. And within that, all we're really looking at is instead of being on the low end of the nutrition ranges, we tend to be towards the high end of the nutrition ranges. Mm -hmm. And then there's this, and there's secondary parts to that based off of what is the expectation of performance. And so people who are power athletes, people who are, who are weight trainers, we tend to talk about them needing more protein in their diets versus yeah. people who are endurance trainers, people who are like cyclists, runners, those things. But what's actually interesting is that because of the way in which metabolism takes place and the way in which hormones get kicked up, people who are endurance athletes actually eat more protein in their diet than the people who are weight trainers and the people who are power athletes. People who are power athletes, people who are weight trainers actually eat more sugar in their diet than what we usually discuss. And mm -hmm. so one of the things that if you look at, if you go to any of the nutrition stores or go to the, to where the, the supplement, the protein supplements are mm -hmm. in the supermarket, if you look at the, the weight gainers, the amount of sugar in the weight gainers relative to the other protein drinks is excessively high. It's like, like candy bar high in terms of the amount of sugar that's there. And that's because of the fact that when I'm doing weight training, I'm on a sugar-based metabolism. Yes, I'm breaking apart muscles. Yes, I'm going to need to be positive protein balance, positive nitrogen balance in order to get growth to take place, but I'm not going to be metabolizing the proteins in my body to meet my energy demands during the weight training. I'm going to be using all of the sugars in my body. Whereas the endurance athlete, because of the change in signals that take place, I'm going to be utilizing a lot of proteins while I'm doing the endurance portion of my exercise. And so we used to think, oh, because it's like steady state, then they'll be using a lot of fat, but it's not necessarily they're going to be using a lot of fat. They're using fat, carbohydrates, and proteins. Mm -hmm. And they're going to be sending out signals, in particular cortisol signals, to break down proteins, break down collagen in particular, to provide the amino acids necessary to get the glucose metabolites, to get glucose back, to keep the Cori cycle going at a high enough level to keep glucose in circulation for all of the cells to be happy. The other thing that comes into play when we look at, at uh, particular sport, quote unquote, sports nutrition are uh, the increased need for some of the minerals and some of the vitamins that are necessary mm -hmm. in order to maintain hydration and in order to maintain normal uh, membrane functions, normal membrane potentials in the body. And so even though we talk about sports nutrition as being a separate branch of nutrition, it's really just a specialized subset of, of the nutrition. And this is where we have to look at uh, needs that are specific to the athlete. 
such as needing additional creatine because as I'm utilizing the cells more often, I'm going to be breaking down a lot more of the creatine phosphate and getting a lot more creatinine being produced. And I have to replace the, the creatine. And so people, so normal people need like three to six grams of creatine in a day, whereas athletes might need six to 20 grams of creatine in a day. Can you talk about um, where you can find the creatine to? Uh, the easiest way of, of getting creatine is to mm -hmm. eat chicken. Okay. Uh, or eat uh, any white meat. Okay. So like uh, uh, fish will have a, a fair amount of, of creatine in it. Uh, we usually won't see a large amount of creatine coming from like red meat. Okay. Creatine is going to be found more in the uh, excessively fast twitch muscle fibers versus the excessively slow twitch muscle fibers. And that's because of the, the way in which we utilize the ATP and how the phosphagen pathway comes into play within those fibers where in the fast switch fibers, we're going to use the creatine phosphate pathway to get ATP back fast enough to keep the twitching going. Whereas in the slow twitch fibers, we'll go ahead and use the mitochondria to get ATP back for a prolonged bit of ATP uh, use. And so eating chicken, eating fish is probably the easiest way of getting creatine back. You can supplement with creatine. It's usually like the, the creatine powder that you might see in the, in the uh, health food stores or in the, uh, the supplement aisles of the supermarkets. The creatine that we consume in the powdered form is used creatine monophosphate monosodium. And so it's, it's, a, it's an anhydrase. It's a creatine that doesn't have water with it, but it has other things that will attract water to it. And so one of the problems with people who supplement with creatine is that they will, they will experience bloating swelling of the of the muscles where it looks like the muscles are getting bigger but what they're really doing is they're simply just absorbing a whole bunch of water into the into the tissues okay and they're absorbing There's a whole bunch a of water with that too but... and they're absorbing a whole bunch of water because of the um the water drawing properties of the salts and of the phosphate within the creatine phosphate molecule. What's interesting is that the way in which we digest that creatine phosphate is that we don't digest it and absorb it as a creatine. We break it down into its components and then absorb those components. Mm -hmm. And so creatine is, is a uh, amino acid that is not one of the essential amino acids or not one of the non-essential amino acids that we need for normal uh, protein development. It's a secondary type of amino acid. Okay. And so just like with all other things that we digest, we eat it, we break it down and we absorb it. And so what we'll do is we'll break down the creatine phosphate, the creatine supplement into its components and absorb those components. And so what the research that has shown positive benefit from supplementing with creatine has only shown positive benefit at supra absorptive levels you're taking like 20 grams a day of creatine for multiple days on end or where you're working out at super physiological levels beyond your maximal level. The problem is that they can't differentiate. Is it the super physiological or is it the super, or is it the super consumption? Mm -hmm. And so if you look at the physiology of what's going on, it has to be from the super physiological. 
And so any of the benefits that we talk about getting from creatine, such as increased workload or increased strength, mm-hmm. is coming from the training that's being done, not from the creatine being consumed. Okay. And, and yes. that's where, and that's, that's where you have to, when you start looking at sports nutrition we start hearing all these, Oh, this gives me this benefit. Right. It is once again, it goes back to the, to the complexity, the complexity issue, how complex the human body is. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very difficult to say that it's that one thing that I'm consuming. Right. That's giving me this benefit beyond all of the other things. Right. Because I even like, like the internet and hearing gym talk in the gym they're like oh yeah i just started taking creatine and like i've noticed that i've got so much bigger and so much stronger but you know can't just be like you said that one thing it's also like your training and Mm -hmm. your diet and and, yep and and that's where that's where when we start looking at a lot of the dietary supplements and a lot of the particular sports nutrition supplements is that we uh, tend to ignore the hawthorne effect within within the response and so the Hawthorne effect is the physiological reason for the placebo effect. The placebo effect is a statistical thing. Mm-hmm. And so when everybody talks about, oh, you're getting this because of a placebo effect, right. you, you're one data point in all of the data mm-hmm. points within, within the normal curve. Mm-hmm. What we're actually referencing, we say, oh, it's because of the placebo effect. It's because of the Hawthorne effect. And so the Hawthorne effect is, is where within a lifestyle intervention, I tend to change behavior without realizing I'm tending to change behavior. And so I'm at the gym and I'm lifting heavy. And someone says, oh, well, if you take this creatine, you'll be able to lift even heavier and you'll get even stronger. Mm-hmm. Where because I'm thinking, oh, I'm taking this thing, it's going to make me stronger. All of a sudden, I'm going to lift heavier things. And it may simply be because of the signals coming from my brain. Mm-hmm. That allows me to lift things that are heavier yeah. more than me taking this one mm-hmm. supplement. And this is where we have to be very careful with this one thing causes that mm-hmm. to come out. And that's where we have the logical fallacy of the post hoc agarra prepara hoc. Whatever happened last is the cause for mm-hmm. that thing to come about because we're ignoring the fact that, oh, I've changed my lifting behavior because I'm taking this, this supplement. And the other thing is, is that we tend not to store creatine. Creatine is, is very tightly regulated within the body. And the only way to get more creatine in the body is to get more fat-free mass. And so the amount of creatine I have in my body is proportional to the amount of fat-free mass I have. Okay. And so... It, just because I'm taking the creatine doesn't necessarily mean that I'm going to be storing mm. the creatine. And so this is where it goes into uh, what should be covered with a lot of the textbooks and sports nutrition stuff where they talk about dietary supplements is that a lot of the dietary supplements that we purport having benefit may not come from the dietary supplement itself, but from all the other aspects of lifestyle surrounding the dietary intervention. Okay. How am I exercising? What part of my periodization am I in? Is it because I have also changed all the other aspects of my diet because I'm now taking this because I want to get stronger? Right. Am I, cha- am I changing my, my lifting habits? Mm-hmm. All of those aspects come into play when we start looking at the, the, the dietary supplement effects. And 
the other thing that, that comes into into play is the fact that we tend to, particularly with with the supplements, like you were saying, oh, I I noticed I've taken this creatine and I feel stronger. Mm-hmm. It falls into the the antidotes. And anecdotal evidence is not empirical evidence. And so one of the things that we have to do when we start looking at athletes and sports and training and performance is we actually have to track training and we have to look at what is training prior to supplement, what is training during supplement, what is training after supplement. And this is where the really good studies that are out there do what's referred to as within subject control. And so within subject control is where we don't have two groups that we're comparing. We have the same individual that we're comparing. And what we do Mm -hmm. is we will track the person, have them do what's referred to as a washout, where they don't train, don't do either the, the fake supplement or the real supplement for a number of weeks. And then they pick back up with the opposite condition. And the problem with the problem with one of the problems with doing that is that if I'm training, I'm going to see performance gains. And so if I'm doing the supplement second, I may see a bigger change on the second side than on the first side that may be more related to the training than to the supplement. Mm-hmm. And so when you're when we start looking at things like creatine, things uh, HMB, um, other uh, metabolites, that are taken as dietary supplements that have been shown to, and by shown have reports out there in the scientific literature that say that there is a positive benefit to it. A lot of times we have to do is we have to look at, is that positive benefit coming from the training or is it coming from the supplement itself? Mm -hmm. Now, having said that there is a line of research that surrounds rehabilitation on creatine, where creatine actually has uh, shown to have positive benefit independent of anything else. Mm-hmm. And that's with people who have uh, concussions where, and they don't, it, here's the thing is that they don't know why. Mm-hmm. The, the rationale for, for the benefit hasn't been uh, conclusively mm-hmm. determined. Mm-hmm. Where people who use creatine following concussions have a faster recovery from the concussion and less post-concussive syndrome. Interesting. And there's a number of rationales given, but there's no one rationale that has held. The one that seems to have the greatest line of evidence to support it is the uh, supplement creatine is providing the mitochondria with the with additional creatine that the mitochondria need in the neurons to allow the neurons to function correctly yes. and to minimize the amount of inflammation that the neurons are experiencing from the concussion and during the post-concussive time frame. That's but, right yeah, yeah and, and so but the that line of research is only about five years old right now. Okay. And part of the problem is, is that when we start looking at concussion and post-concussion issues, a lot of it is self-reported 
and the timeline for people who to uh, recover from concussions and stop experiencing post-concussive issues is very individualized. There's mm. no real time course right. that we say, oh, this is when it starts is when it stops. Unlike say like a sprained ankle. Like we, we have things that we can do to say, okay, you're good to go to play again. Mm-hmm. Whereas with concussions, it's very kind of sensitive to the individual. There are some indications where we can look at distinct inflammatory hormones that come from cells within the brain that are not neurons, the, the glial cells. Mm. In particular, uh, a signal known as SOB that when it's elevated is an indication that, that there is a large amount of concussive damage taking place, particularly when we see high levels of SOB with high levels of glucose. And that's simply because the inflammation signals are telling the rest of the cells to stop using glucose because we need glucose for the immune cells. The problem with SOB is that if I happen to be dehydrated, mm-hmm. the same cells that send out SOB from inflammation signals from damage send out SOB signals from dehydration. You don't know if it's, sorry, dehydration or damage? Mm-hmm. Okay. And so so what, what's interesting is that because SOB triggers inflammation response within the brain itself, mm-hmm. is that people who are dehydrated and suffer very minor head trauma mm-hmm. will have an exacerbated inflammatory response to that minor head trauma. Mm-hmm. And so there's been a lot of uh, reports about like chronic traumatic encephalopathy, CTE, in like soccer players mm-hmm. and in uh, other athletes that don't normally have large amounts of like head trauma. Mm-hmm. Like there's all these reports about like football players, like American football players. But we're seeing the same type of, of traumatic encephalopathy from soccer players who have had, who have had head trauma but not head trauma to the point where they would suffer a concussion. And that's because of the SOB signals and other inflammatory signals that get increased when dehydration is is taking place. And so one of the things that we want to uh, worry about for our athletes, going back to the sports nutrition stuff, is making sure that they are properly hydrated because proper hydration is essential for normal neuron functions, normal CSF, cerebral spinal fluid, normal muscle functions, normal neuron functions. And so we usually think about like hydration issues with like cramping, mm-hmm. but the hydration issues is going to impact other things that the athlete has to worry about. The other thing that athletes tend to have to worry about is, and it goes back to, and it's, it's a really bad uh, concept is the caloric balance concept. Okay. Is that people who are athletic, people who are, who are active, have higher metabolic rates than people who are less active. It's not that they have fast metabolisms or slow metabolisms, it's just that their metabolic rates happens to be higher. And so what ends up happening is a lot of people, when they start looking at sports nutrition issues, will start talking about, oh, needing more calories in a day in order to balance the calories being used. But what that what's actually happening for the athlete and the people who would be normally following like a sports nutrition line of nutritional advice. They simply need to have more grams per kilogram of body mass of the macromolecules and of the vitamins and of the minerals than people who are less active or less athletic. 
And so oh, we look it's at more like focusing on sorry grams per kilogram. Yeah, grams grams per kilogram. So so when we look at like remember the nutrient balance. Right. So when we look at the balances in the diet, we usually talk about either by caloric balance, or we talk about it by based off of nutrient balance. And nutrient balance seems to be more important than caloric balance. I see. Okay. And so when we look at the nutrient balance, we talk about carbohydrates. Mm-hmm. For athletes being between five and 10 grams of carbohydrates per kilogram of body mass. Okay. For so looking at that more specifically than just total caloric. Yeah. And so like, like if they talk about like caloric balance, we talk about, oh, out of 2000 calories per day, 40 to 50% coming from carbohydrates. Okay. That may not be enough in terms of the grammage to meet the needs for the athlete. Okay. Makes sense. And so what we do is we usually break it down into grams per kilogram. So for, for the athlete, the low end for the athlete is around five grams per kilogram. For the more active athlete, we're looking at like 10 grams per kilogram. Mm, okay. And then within that, we also have to look at replenishing glycogen stores following activity. And that's where we look at like a, between 0.8 and one gram per kilogram per hour of exercise so let's say like you happen to be like 50 kilograms if you do an hour of exercise you need to consume between 40 and 50 grams of carbohydrate particular uh table sugar sucrose Mm -hmm. to replenish the glycogen stores that you use during the exercise for that same athlete we also have to look at a higher amount of protein requirements where instead of using like the 20 to 30% maximum for the caloric balance, we're going to look at somewhere around like 2.2 grams per kilogram of body mass okay. for for the athlete, for protein. And the one that usually gets kind of ignored is the fats. Mm-hmm. And so with, with fats, particularly for the, for the, the athlete, we got to make sure that we're getting uh, somewhere between uh, five and six grams of the omega-3 fatty acids. And somewhere around uh, 20 to 30 grams of the omega-6 fatty acids, mm-hmm. along with at least 20 grams of saturated fat within the fat consumption of about one gram per kilogram of body mass. And the reason why we, uh, the athlete in particular needs the saturated fats, even though everybody talks about saturated fats as being the bad fats, mm-hmm. is that all of the metabolism that we have for fat metabolism, for using fats for fuel source, is utilizing the saturated fats. And the principal saturated fat is palmitic acid, mm-hmm. palmitic fat. That's a saturated fat. And that's the fat that's going to go in, go in through the fat utilization pathways, the beta oxidation pathways, where when we talk about burning fat, that's the fat that's going to be burned. Nice. Whereas the other fats, we need to uh, regulate cholesterol levels, LDL, HDL levels, Mm-hmm. regulate ROS formations and immune inflammatory hormones. And so the omega-3s are going to be highly involved with inflammatory hormone production, particularly from the eosinophil type of white blood cells. And so those are going to be uh, tightly regulated with how much inflammation comes out from the exercise that's being done. But once again, just like we talked about earlier in terms of having just the you don't want to have too little, you don't want to have too much over consuming those fats can be, can have dilatorious, can have 
adverse or bad effects mm -hmm. because I have to metabolize those fats into the other fats that I need. And so when, we're, when we talk about things like sports nutrition stuff, sports nutrition, health nutrition, and a lot of times we talk about health nutrition, we usually don't talk about in terms of health. We usually talk about in terms of disease prevention mm -hmm. or what to do if I happen to have a disease mm -hmm. as opposed to what type of eating should I be doing in order to have optimal health. Mm -hmm. And that's where when we look at breaking down the consumption of uh, foods into the ranges mm -hmm. as opposed to, oh, this diet is the best, this diet is the best, because there's no such thing as a, as a best diet. Mm -hmm. Even though if you talk to anybody who happens to follow a diet, they'll tell you that their diet is the best. Right. That was really, that was really informative. Thank you. Mm-hmm.